0: As I continue my journey towards wealth, I'm discovering more and more what the path to wealth entails. Yes, understanding what to buy and what to sell plays a part, but putting your money to work is a great start, and maybe you'll pick some real winners. But how do people consistently grow their wealth over time? What steps have they taken? Are they born with this gift, or is it something that can be developed? And why is it that the rich always get richer? Well, so far on my journey of discovery, I've found the number one factor to increasing your wealth is, and maybe forever will be, the practice of developing your financial intelligence. And there's not a better place to start than listening to an episode of The Wealth Journal. So let's get cracking. (music) Welcome to episode eight of the Wealth Journal podcast with me, Jay Hardy. And of course, the Wealth Journal is about me sharing my weekly learnings on wealth. Now, what it's not about is financial advice. I am, of course, not a financial advisor, and this podcast is purely here for both educational and entertainment purposes. Now, point one in my Wealth Journal this week is how the rich get richer and also pay very little tax. Since the pandemic in March 2020, the world's uber affluent have grown their wealth by almost 2 trillion. That's a 2 with 12 zeros. That number's so big that on calculator mode on your iPhone, you'd have to turn the screen horizontally. It's massive. Now, if you just look at the top 10 richest people on the planet, they've grown their wealth by almost 890 billion. That's more than the economic output of Sweden. Just 10 people and as of recording this podcast it's probably even more so let's look at some of the biggest winners Elon Musk I think we probably all know who Elon Musk is he owns Tesla SpaceX and since March 2020 he's grown his wealth from 25 billion to 270 billion that's a 1000% increase and he he tops the list the next biggest winner is Bernard Arnaud, who is from the family of LMVH, Louis Vuitton Moe Hennessy, that uber luxury brand, he grew his wealth 160% from 76 billion to 199 billion. The Google Boys, Larry Page, Sergey Brin, grew their wealth 150% from 50 billion to around 120 billion. If you haven't tried Google, I recommend you check it out. It's pretty good, pretty good service. Jeff Bezos, of course, founder of Amazon. He only grew his wealth by a mere 80% from 113 to 203 billion. And if you haven't heard of Amazon, um, I recommend you check them out too. Pretty good service. Speaking of poor performances, Warren Buffett. He only grew his wealth by a pathetic 54% to just over 104 billion. All the mentions I give him on the podcast, and he rocks up with a lousy 54% gain. Warren's clearly lost his touch. But ultimately, this isn't money just going into their pockets. This isn't wages, it's asset appreciation. That's what's causing these these people to get richer. The stock they own in their companies has been growing massively. And remember, the rich own assets and the poor and middle class, we have jobs. (laughs) Another factor is that the rich are also very, very good at paying little tax. And according to leaked data from the IRS, which is the US, almost the US tax office, from 2014 to 2018, the richest 25 Americans grew their wealth by over $400 billion and yet paid a true tax rate of only 3.4%. The richest, including Buffett, only paid an effective rate of 0.1%. Bezos, an effective rate of around 1%, and Elon Musk, just over three percent. However, and importantly, they've all been paying taxes legally. The only shame for you and me is that when we increase our wealth, or normal people, we tend to increase our earnings, our taxes tend to go up in proportion. But that's not always the case for the rich. The rich often avoid income tax at all costs. And it's a tax that's pretty hard to avoid for most people because it's taxed at the source. But because the rich own assets and assets appreciate, and they're they're taxed at capital gains. Capital gains tax is much, much lower than income tax. So that's one of their saving tips number one, utilize capital gains tax. And it makes sense for the rich to have really low salaries. In fact, some of the rich just have token salaries. I think Steve Jobs famously had a $1 salary from Apple, and they take stock or stock options rather than salaries. But here's the fun part. The capital gains tax is only due once the gains from the asset appreciation has been realised, i.e. the asset is sold. However, the rich are not obliged to sell any of their assets. So in some cases, they never actually pay the capital gains. So how do they afford to live? How do they afford to live these lavish lifestyles that we we see them, them enjoying? Well, they use debt. That's right. The rich and some of the richest people on the planet are actually the biggest users of debt. And one of the ways they use debt is to borrow money against their assets. And they essentially just live their lives off this borrowed money. And they use their assets as collateral for this debt. And this tactic means that the rich don't need to sell their assets. They can continue to grow with the gains never fully being materialized. And therefore, the taxes never being paid. This strategy is called buy, borrow, die And I first came across this in a recent video from the Coin Bureau, which actually, if you search the internet, it's quite widely known. The rich basically buy and accumulate assets. That's one of the learnings we've discovered on the Wealth Journal. They borrow against them and then die without ever paying the tax against their gains. Now, for for the rich, this debt is much easier for them to get compared to to you or me taking out a loan. The rich are putting up valuable assets, which banks view extremely favourably. And as a result, the banks give them access to crazy low interest rates, some lower than 1% if you've got assets over $100 million. And these interest rates are so low that actually over the course of 12 months, their assets are actually appreciating at a higher interest rate than what their loans and debts are. And the best part for the rich is that the interest on the loans that they're taking is also a tax deductible expense which can be used to offset their already low tax bills. And the banks continually let the rich carry over these loans because they've got them tied up against very liquid and, I guess, high-value value assets. And then the final step for the rich is, of course, to die. And then at that point, they never pay tax on, on any of them gains. They pass on their assets and, uh, to their to their families through inheritance, and then the cycle keeps going. And apparently there is trillions of untaxed and unrealized gains in the system. And this is why quite recently in the news, particularly over in the US, that the Democrats are looking for new ways to tax the rich. How do how do we tax these these unrealized gains that they have? And of course, that's a fairly controversial topic, which I'm not going to get into on this podcast. So what are the lessons here? Well, if you're at the point where you have assets of, say, over a million pounds or a million dollars, and this actually could be a viable strategy for you. And I'm sure as hell that this was never covered in schools. So if applicable, speak to your tax advisor. Review your options. Unfortunately for me, I'm not quite there yet. But having learnt this, hopefully one day in the future, I can use it to my advantage. The next point in my wealth journal this week is market cap and other jargon. I've just got this written down. Now, one topic I thought I'd cover this week was market capitalization. It's a term often used in the world of finance. And if anything, it's a much better indicator of a company's size rather than just its share price. Now, by definition, a company's market cap or market capitalization is the number of outstanding shares times the share price. Because just looking at a share price isn't an indicator of the value or size of a company. I'll give, you a, I'll give you an example. Amazon's share price currently is around three and a half thousand dollars. Apple's share price is one hundred and forty eight dollars. So Amazon's share price is twenty-three times larger than Apple's. But when you look at the market cap, there's just much more Apple shares out there. Their market cap is two point four trillion, whereas Amazon's is one point seven trillion. It's not twenty three larger than apple it's 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 actually smaller so the share price isn't always an indication of the size of the company you've got to view that in balance with the number of shares available now why is market cap important well it's a good metric when you're analyzing a future price potential of a company now let's say someone recommends a share say a peloton i've talked about them before actually i've given the kiss of death on the podcast because they've been performing pretty terrible since i mentioned them this is why i don't recommend stocks okay But let's say, for example, that um, somebody says Peloton, the fitness company, in in 12 months time, they think the price is going to go from $50 to $1,000. And you're like, okay, that sounds pretty interesting. You can then quickly work out what their market cap is now and what it will be when the price reaches $1,000. And at $1,000, you can compare it then to other companies and see if it's realistic. So... A thousand dollars, Peloton would have a market cap of three hundred billion. Okay, great. What does that what does that mean? What's it compared to? Well that would make them bigger than Disney in twelve months' time. Bigger than Netflix, bigger than Nike, bigger than Toyota. That would require a huge amount of investment and capital to get Peloton to these levels. So are they realistic? And I guess you as the investor needs to ask yourself these questions. A market cap is also a useful sense check when you're looking at, let's say, cryptocurrencies. i am not gone into cryptocurrencies yet in any significant detail, but the fundamentals are very similar to stocks and shares. You have an amount of cryptocurrencies in the marketplace, so almost like a number of shares or a number of coins, and then obviously a price per coin, so you can work out a market cap of a cryptocurrency. Now, as I've been exposed to the worlds of the world of finance, you often hear about certain cryptocurrency projects that you should buy into or whatever they are. And there's many that suggest very random coins and they'll say, Will this coin, Dogecoin, hit this price in twelve months time? Or Shiba Inu, will it hit this price at a certain time? And again, what you can do is look at the circulating supply of a certain coin. So let's take Shiba Enu as an example. This has been a very popular coin over the last few months. It's one of these sort of meme coins. Now, the total supply of Shiba is 550 trillion. And I see loads of articles saying, will Shiba reach one cent? Well, with that much supply, for it to reach one cent, it would end up having a market cap of around about 5.5 trillion which is huge which is you know more than double the size of apple is that is that realistic or is this somebody just trying to make you invest in a certain cryptocurrency to push up the price then they can sell and then they can make money maybe who knows but it's just one thing just to be aware of and it's quite a good thing for you to for you to test now one other jargon related topic i wanted to discuss is bulls and bears now, as I've become more and more involved in the world of finance, I guess these last few years, I've unfortunately started to speak as if I am on CNBC or work on Wall Street. So I wanted just to go over some of these words in case they pop up on the podcast and you think, what is he talking about? Because I think the Wealth Journal is, is me trying to democratise the world of finance and make it easier for everyone to understand. I might say, for example, oh, I'm bullish on a particular stock or a particular project and I'm bearish on something else. So as a bullish investor also known as a bull, they believe that the price of something will will rise. Whereas a bearish investor is somebody who believes the price of something will go down or eradicate over time. But the terms bull and bear are also used to describe current market conditions and how the stock market is doing. And a bull market is, of course, one on the rise when the economy is sound. And a bear market exists when an economy is receding or stocks are declining. And the bull, of course, is a sign of financial optimism and prosperity. And that's why there's a huge bronze statue of one on Wall Street in the US financial district. I actually ran through a field the other day with a bull in it. And um, yeah, I didn't actually feel optimistic or prosperous. I felt scared. The final point in my wealth journal this week is US inflation. They released some figures last week. And in October, the U.S. Consumer Price Index, or the CPI, their measure of inflation, jumped to 6.2%, which was up 0.9% on the previous month. It sounds small, but it's almost a full percentage increase in just one month. That's huge when you consider the annual target for the U.S. is 2%, so 1% in a month, massive. That data exceeded the estimates for a number of economists and therefore caused the markets to get a little bit nervous and we saw some declines. And it made me think, what what actually moves the markets? Well, it's things like this. It's not so much the fact that we have inflation. The markets knew that and they know it's quite high at the moment. And I think the broad estimates were around about 54 to 5.9%. The problem with 62 at the time is that the market didn't expect it that high which then caused a reaction. And this is the same with company earnings. If the market expects a company to do well, and they do do well and meet the expectation, not much tends to happen. A company delivers amazing results and then the price doesn't move. However, when the earnings are above or below expectations, we then start to see movements. So when you follow an earnings announcement, and you hear it beat analyst estimates or it was below analyst estimates, that's when we get these these price movements. And to be fair, the last 12 months, I've heard that all the time. And I, I do sometimes wonder who these analysts actually are that are coming up with these est- estimates. Anyway, inflation. What does this mean for stocks? Well, the past year, due to the pandemic, we've seen really, really low interest rates, which promote spending. And we've had a huge influx of cash in the system. The US did stimulus checks. The UK supported people with, with furlough. We also have banks offering customers uh, mortgage holidays and i know some people who took holidays on their mortgages when when they were still in full-time employment they they didn't need to but the the money was available people used extra cash to renovate their homes you know so there was a lot more money cheap money and cash in the system and that's been very good for asset prices we've seen all-time highs in the stock market in property prices crypto so having more money available more people buying assets, the more they go up. It's created that bull market effect. The UK also did um, the stamp duty holiday, and that massively accelerated the housing market. And you could argue, did it? Did it really need it? So, what happens if, if this high inflation continues? Well, it's possible governments will look to try and slow this down and slow the money going into the system. They can't take they can't take it back what's already been put in but they can slow it down. And then the next option is potentially to increase interest rates. And this is why the market sold off a little bit on the high inflation news. Higher rates equal higher borrowing costs. Mortgages go up. Higher rates also mean people have less money to spend because they're having to pay a higher mortgage and therefore consumer confidence reduces and that leads to prices falling. Higher rates can also lead to higher savers as they benefit and therefore less spending. And this can have a negative impact on asset prices so you're probably thinking what's what's going to happen now some believe that this inflation period is transitory as in as we're transitioning out of the pandemic we're bound to see inflation you know there's been pressure on supply chains they're trying to catch up with this sudden sudden surge in demand i'm sure everybody's aware of that so some people believe it's just like a transitory inflation and then when we get back to normality everything will sort of correct itself. Others think that the genie is now out of the bottle. It's not transitory. So we'll have to potentially rely on action from the governments. And if that's the case, who knows what the impact of rate increases could have on everyone. Certainly everyone who has a hefty mortgage that they've taken out recently, thanks to the housing boom. Could this be the beginning of the next market crash? Could it be the beginning of the next housing market crash? Who knows? So what am I doing about it? Well, as it stands, nothing. I'm sticking to the basics. Okay, there's a bit of nervousness, but sometimes nervousness creates opportunities. And if there's a full-blown stock market crash for a long-term investor, potentially that's the time where you can you can get cheaper stocks. So I'm just trying to remain calm. There's no point in worrying about the future. That's everything in my wealth journal this week. Remember, if you enjoyed this episode or any other episode for that matter, please rate, follow and leave a review. And do me a huge favor of passing on the podcast to a friend or family member or colleague. And as always, feel free to reach out during the week if you have any questions, thoughts, feedback. I always enjoy getting a message, so keep them coming. This has been The Wealth Journal with me, Jay Hardy. Thanks for listening.